5 tonight. And boy, what a powerful closing chapter of 1 Thessalonians 5 is. Why are we going through the Bible like this? Because man shall not live by bread alone. But every word, not a few special verses, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so we're learning the scriptures. I want this church to be, be biblically literate, to know your Bible. Because with the Bible, with the truth, you'll defeat the devil. All right? So let's pray over 1 Thessalonians 5 and pray that God opens our eyes tonight. Lord, we just thank you for being with us right now. You are the giver of this word, and we pray, give us understanding, open our eyes, and feed us. Can you pray with me and say, Lord, I receive your word. Speak to my soul in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And we're going to look tonight at the Lord's coming, a sanctifying truth. And by the way, diverting a little bit, digressing a little bit, uh, the parking lot project and the rest of the building is only upstairs remaining, 10,000 feet. We're calling it Project 35, Project I-35. That's where God's put us, right on I-35. So when we give and do that parking lot and finish the upstairs, it's going to be Project 35. Can you say that with me? Project 35. All right. I love the word of the Lord because it so feeds the spirit of God's children. Now tonight in chapter 5, we're going to look at the Lord's coming, a sanctifying truth. What did John say? John said, he that has this hope in him, what hope? The hope of the Lord's return purifies himself. So if you're always expecting the Lord to return, if, if you never lose sight of the imminent return of Christ, it purifies you. You know why? Because you live clean. Because he could come at any moment. Amen? Now, I want to recap since we're headed towards the end of the book and we're going to slide straight from 1 Thessalonians into 2 Thessalonians, which is powerful. It's three chapters. I would encourage you to read ahead, soak it up, make some notes, uh, get into it, and uh, kind of prepare the way for us to go there because we're going there next. But let's recap a little bit on 1 Thessalonians. So far, we've learned that Paul wrote the Thessalonians due to their concern about the death of loved ones. Remember, Paul had to leave quickly. He was driven out of town. And as he left quickly, he left a bunch of young believers who had been taught some, but they were not very old in the faith. And so uh, as he departed and moved on and began another crusade in Corinth, uh, loved ones among the Thessalonians uh, died just naturally, just died like people do. And they had questions. What has become of them? Are they going to miss the rapture? Uh, you know, are they in some kind of a soul sleep? They began to ask these questions. Uh, uh, are they in heaven right now? Are they with the Lord? What happens to somebody who dies before the rapture? Well, Paul took that opportunity to write the first epistle he ever wrote. And it's this one, 1 Thessalonians. To answer that question, and of course, the Holy Spirit moved on him. And he gave us a lot of incredible information. But now Paul responded with a beautiful revelation of the future rapture of the church. Where the dead in Christ shall rise first. 
This was a mystery. This was a revelation. This had never been broached before. So now Paul is receiving a a revelation on this catching up of the saints. And then he says after that, the dead in Christ rising first, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Whoa. Anybody in here afraid of heights? Better get over it. Because you're going to meet the Lord where? In the air. Isn't that what it said? That's exactly what he said. We are therefore to encourage one another with these words. In other words, don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Because they're with the Lord. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. I was reading last night, the book of Acts, when Stephen was martyred. It says he knelt down as the rocks pummeled him. He knelt down. And he said this, he said, Lord, receive my spirit. Receive my spirit. And then it says he died. Or the Bible says actually went to sleep. Meaning his body died. What does that tell us? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. There is no soul sleep. There is no purgatory. There is no in-between place where you just kind of wait No, your spirit goes in the presence of the Lord immediately. And then when the Lord comes back in the rapture, your body is resurrected and you receive a glorified body. But he answered questions like these. And the overarching theme of 1 Thessalonians is the return of the Lord. Each chapter mentions this great and awesome event. Let's look at those chapters real quick. Chapter one deals with the Lord's coming, a saving truth. Chapter 2 looks at the Lord's coming, a stimulating truth. Chapter 3 touches on the Lord's coming, a stabilizing truth. Chapter 4 involves the Lord's coming, a strengthening truth. And now tonight we're going to look at the Lord's coming, a sanctifying truth in chapter 5. All right? Now since there's no chapter breaks in the original text, it was just one long letter we, we put the chapter breaks there. Men did. But that's okay. It didn't corrupt the text at all. They just put chapter breaks in there. Now, since there was no chapter break in the original Greek, uh, chapter 5 begins with the word but. B-U-T begins with the word but, which links us directly back to chapter 4. Chapter 4 closed with the assurance that those who participate in the rapture will be delivered from the coming wrath of God. That's how chapter 4 closed. Now, the key to understanding what chapter 4 gave us and what chapter 5 is going to give us, now listen carefully, let's get into a little bit of of, uh, English, a little bit of language here. It's very easy. The key to understanding this passage is to consider carefully the personal pronouns involved in Paul's discussion. Now, there are two classes of pronouns, and you're going to get this real easily. There are those addressed as I, ye, you, yourselves, we, and us. Those are all personal pronouns, all right? Those pronouns refer to believers. When Paul is using ye, you, yourselves, we, us, when he includes himself in the group by saying us, He's talking about the church. 
those who are candidates for the rapture. Anybody in here a candidate? All right. Now, Paul uses these pronouns from the preceding description of the rapture in chapter 4, verse 13 to 18. You ought to go through those verses and pick out all those personal pronouns because all of them are addressing the church. All right? Now, in contrast with this group, Paul refers to another group by using the personal pronouns they and them. Those should have been italicized, they and them. But they and them. When he says they and them, the message is simple. Saints and sinners alike are contrasted here. The saints, you, ye, us, are destined to be caught away from the coming wrath. We're going to be caught away. But sinners, those who have never come to Christ, are destined to be caught up in the destruction of the coming wrath. They are. Paul begins with three things about the Lord's people. First, they are directed by Scripture. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, But of the times and the season, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. Now, why did he say that? Because clearly, he's referring to prior revelation that they had received from the Old Testament and in the Lord Jesus' own prophetic teaching. He said, you don't need me to teach you for the very first time or to write unto you about something you don't already know. See, I believe that when Paul was with them before he was driven out of town, I think it's pretty clear in the scriptures, he taught them about these things. We call them eschatological, eschatology, future events, prophetic events that are going to be fulfilled. He taught them on that. So he said, you don't need me to write to you for the very first time. You know these things. And you know what, church? Everyone who names the name of Christ ought to know these things. The word times. And where do you see the word times? Of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you. Now, what does he mean by times? The word times refers to the various time periods involved in God's dealings with the human race. We call this dispensations. Can you say that with me? Dispensations. A dispensation simply means uh, that during a certain time period, God dealt with the human race a certain way. Now let's look at an example. In the Old Testament dispensation, various sacrifices were made throughout every year, every year, years and years and years on end, Sacrifices were made for the sins of man, for the sins of the people. They would have, you know, the Passover lamb and so on and so forth. And they did these repeatedly through the years because that was the Old Testament dispensation. That's the way God dealt with them then. And then there was the New Testament dispensation where God has spoken once for all through his son, Jesus Christ. And there doesn't ever need to be another sacrifice. Never again, because Jesus died once for all for the sins of men. You can't add to it. You can't take away from it. His sacrifice was perfect. It was sufficient. It covers our sins. It erases our sins. It atones for our sins. It is done. That's why Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. And what happened then? The veil in the temple was ripped in half. That 
tall, thick veil. What was God saying? The old dispensation is over. It's time for the new dispensation. Now, whosoever will can enter into the presence of the Lord through the blood of Jesus, through the name of Jesus, because we have been forgiven. So that's what he's talking about when he says the times. Christ's death on the cross ended the Old Testament dispensation, God's former way of dealing with humankind. Now, the word seasons, you got times and seasons. The word seasons refers to special characteristics, features, highlights, and signs that mark the end times. Catch that. Because right now, we're in the end time season. Well, what are the characteristics, the features, the highlights, the signs that mark the end times? What is what is the season look like? Well, many of these are becoming clearer to us now that we are approaching the end of the end times. Here's a few of them. The rebirth of the state of Israel, huge in 1948. Sign of the season of the end times. The rise of Russia, predicted by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 38. The impending revival of the Roman Empire, predicted by Daniel and others. The dawn of the nuclear age. The persistence of malignant anti-Semitism. I am amazed that after World War II and Hitler and the Holocaust, we could be seeing a rise of anti-Semitism like we are right now, but we are. The Jewish people are coming under the gun there in the crosshairs once again. All over the world. And I want to tell you, never go there, never step into that spirit. Bless God's people, pray for God's people, don't ever curse God's people. But malignant anti-Semitism is a sign of the season of the end times. Global catastrophes, the emergence of a pornographic and homosexual society, is a sign of the end times because Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. And he said, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, in the days of Noah, the earth was filled with terroristic violence. And in the days of Lot, it was filled with homosexual perversion. So it's a sign of the season of the end times. And then there's the apostasy of the professing church. Didn't Paul say, in the last days, in the latter years, in the latter times, men shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. There will be an apostasy, a walking away of, from the faith, once delivered to the saints that Jude talked about. And then there's the spread of terrorism, persecution, famine, and earthquakes are all features of the end times. Now Paul next refers them to a perfect revelation. For yourselves know, how do they know? Say it with me, perfectly. They don't need any improvement. You all know perfectly what the day of the Lord is going to look like. How's it going to come? They didn't have a half an understanding they fully got it. It's going to be like a thief in the night. When the Lord returns. 
The Lord's coming for his church is likened to a thief in the night. A thief comes unexpectedly. When people are asleep or when, the, or when they're busy or distracted, the thief strikes in a vulnerable, unsuspecting moment. And usually you don't know that they were there till they're gone and you have been robbed. Well, guess what? The Lord's going to come like a thief. The world won't know that he came. And something's going to be taken. And it's called the church. The phrase that he uses, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is very important. It's found four times in the New Testament, 17 times in the Old Testament. From the Bible's perspective, we are now um, in the time of man. 1 Corinthians 4, 3, Paul wrote, But with me, it is a very small thing that I should not be judged by you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. Now, we're in the time of man right now. And it's about to be the time of 666. We're in the time of man's judgment. That is, man is exalting himself. Look at the nations of the world. Man is exalting himself and is trying to rule God out of his own world. I mean, we're trying to legislate God out of America right now. Every time I turn around, every time I read news, I'm grieved in my spirit over some of the things I read because here we go again. It was decided in a court last week that it was unconstitutional to use the name of Jesus. Using a court in America, unconstitutional. A judge ruled, preposterous, absurd, but it happened. It's the time of man right now. That is, I'm not saying God's not in charge, but right now we're seeing man promote himself. But guess what? In the day of the Lord, the Lord is going to reassert his claim over this planet. In the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is primarily a day of wrath and judgment, but it does also extend into the the, uh, millennial age where the lion lays down with the lamb, children play at the the, uh, dens of snakes, and there's no more carnivorous activity between the animals, and there's no more war. We have beaten our swords into plowshares and so on and so forth. That's the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ. So the day of the Lord leads into that. But prior to that millennial reign, the day of the Lord is a day of wrath. I'm going to tell you something, church. The wrath of God is going to be poured on this planet. There are consequences for sin. Our God does not blink at sin. Now, yes, he handled sin through Jesus Christ's blood. But there's going to come a time when he's going to judge a Christ-rejecting world. As surely as we sit here tonight, it's coming. Now, the focal point of the day of the Lord is found in the book of Revelation and the terrible seven years of judgments that follow the rapture. It's going to be a terrible time. The Thessalonians, Paul says, knew perfectly about these things. I want you to know them perfectly. I want you to be sure. Paul said, I am confident he's able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. There comes a point where you don't have to go, well, I think so, hope so, perhaps so, maybe so. No, 
We're to know some things. No-so. And here's one of the no-sos. The Lord's coming back. And here's another no-so. He's going to judge this world. However, the judgment era called the tribulation will not start out looking so bad. It won't start out looking bad at all. It will hold its years of promise, but they will be deceptive years. Addressing himself now to the unsaved, Paul writes these words. Verse 3, chapter 5. For when they shall say, peace, safety, finally, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and not one of them shall escape. They shall not escape. Now a quick survey of the seven-year tribulation period revealed in the book of Revelation underlines this fact. We're talking about the tribulation period. After the rapture of the church, there will be a time of tribulation. The first three and a half years of that time period will be seemingly peaceful because of the man of sin who has taken over and seemingly solved the problems of the world. But the book of Revelation reveals terrible judgments will fall during that seven-year time period, the second half of those seven years. First, the seven seals are poured out, resulting in a world ruined by man. There will be false Christs. Wars, famines, pestilences, and persecutions dwarfing all of those throughout history. Now, I read a lot of history, and there have always been false Christs, but there has never been a proliferation of false Christs and false messiahs and false doctrines and false hopes than now. Not that I've ever seen in history. Jesus said these things would increase and multiply as his appearance draws near. Then the seven trumpets are to be blown, resulting in a world ruled by Satan. The Antichrist will be revealed. We're going to see this in 2 Thessalonians when we get into that little book of three chapters. The Antichrist is going to be revealed. He'll bring order out of chaos. He'll unite the European continent. He will impose a false peace upon the world. The world will hail his power, his policies, and his person. They will look upon him as an economic and political genius. Has there ever been another like this one? I used to think this can't happen in America. I no longer think it. Our media is so sold out to a progressive, anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-Bible agenda, they are not only, and I'm, I'm, this is going over a lot of radio stations, but I, I know that it's true. They're not just commentators anymore, but they are propagandists, often, way too often, twisting and skewing things as they see fit, according to their worldview. I used to think that how can an antichrist take over when our media was, was there in, inspecting this person and checking this person out and, 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 and questioning the whole rise of this individual, but I don't anymore. I've seen how they are swallowed up and can go a certain way and you go, when in the world did they become radicalized? A lot of them have. Well, so I can easily see the Antichrist now actually pulling this off. 
It will appear that peace has come to the world at last. Economic prosperity and world trade are going to flourish at first under this man. The infamous mark of the beast, 666, the number of man will be imposed upon the world. He'll institute a one-world monetary system, a one-world government, and a one-world religion called the harlot. And we hear right now world leaders everywhere talking about we need a one-world government. We need a one-world currency. We need a one-world religion. I personally believe that it's very possible that this latest thing of Chrislam might end up being it. Mixing Christianity with Islam, which you cannot do. What fellowship does light have with darkness? You can't do it, but they're attempting to do it. It could be. We'll see. But just when men are shouting peace and safety, Paul says, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child. They shall not escape. A bloodbath of persecution against the Jewish people and tribulation saints. Tribulation saints being those that are saved during the tribulation will follow. People will be saved during the tribulation. They may get some of our CDs and be saved. I don't know. But I know this. That there will be a bloodbath of persecution. The Bible says so. Believers, tribulation saints, and the Jewish people will be tracked relentlessly, stalked, arrested, and according to the scriptures, martyred by this vicious devil of a man called the Antichrist. It'll be the likes of which the world has never seen in all its long and violent history. And violence is really the earmark of man. But this is going to be worse than ever. And Jesus said if those days were not shortened, no flesh would be saved. It'll be so violent. Now notice the pronouns in the above verse that we just read. Paul does not include we or us, but instead uses they and them. Very, very important. He's talking about them, not us. While the tribulation begins with a world ruined by man, resulting in a world ruled by Satan, it ends with a world rescued by God. Now the tribulation ends with the appearance of Jesus Christ returning in great power and glory. This is the second coming of Christ where John prophesied, every eye shall see him. In the rapture when he comes, nobody in the world knows that he came. He comes like a thief. But when he comes to end the tribulation period, every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, because they are resurrected to face their judgment. And all the tribes of the earth, John said, will mourn because of him. You know why they're mourning? Oh, my Lord, it was true. It was true. It was true. Paul next contrasts the essential differences between saints and sinners, calling them children of the day or children of the night. Verses 4 and 5, he says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all, read it with me, everyone, sons of light and sons of light <laughs> and sons of the day. Okay? We are not of the night nor of darkness. There's a huge difference between you 
and they, us and them. And I don't say that proudly or pridefully in any arrogant way. By grace, I'm saved through faith. Thank God for the grace of God. I once was lost, now I'm found, was blind, so blind. But now I see why because of the grace of God. But there is an us and there is a them. Twice the personal pronoun once again is emphatic. You are not in darkness. You are sons of light. The Holy Spirit points out emphatically the marked difference between the nature and the destiny of Christians and the nature and the doom of unbelievers. Wow. The darkness Paul mentions refers to the world's abysmal ignorance of God and his purposes. I'm amazed that you have so many college-educated people in America who don't know a thing about the Lord, nothing about the Bible. A lot of the time, these atheists and agnostics that are always attacking the church have never read the Bible. They don't know what they're talking about. We got a real wind out there, don't we? Now, it might be the Holy Spirit. The word darkness is also used to describe Satan and his demon spirits as the unseen rulers of this present world. Read about that in Ephesians 6. And it's also used to describe the horrors of a lost eternity without God. Can you imagine? Now, when Christ returns, the world will be in darkness. When Jesus comes back, people will be listening to the deceptive voices of the humanists, the New Agers, the evolutionists, and the Antichrist. They will be bewitched and led astray, blind leading the blind, when Jesus Christ returns and every eye sees him. But we, the children of light, are not in the dark about these things. We're not in the dark. Amen? Now, not only is our understanding different from the world's, but so is our conduct. Chapter 5 Verses 6 and 7, read it with me. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be what? Sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, well, not in Texas. They get drunk all the time. But you get the idea. Here's the deal. He's talking about spiritually. It's a spiritual metaphor. He's saying you're asleep because you're in the spiritual dark. You're, getting, you're living a drunken life because you're in spiritual darkness. That's what he's saying. We are not to live like those who are dead in trespasses and sins. We are not to sleep like a dead person appears to do. We are to be very much alive. Are you alive tonight? Are you alive tonight? You're a child of light, a child of the day. Are you alive tonight? Yes, you are. We must be sober in contrast with Lot. Remember old Lot? Gets delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens? Gets led up into the mountains. And he got drunk. And dishonored himself with his own daughters. Even when the very world about him was a smoking ruin. He was not aware of it because he was in a drunken state. That's the idea. That is not God's will for you or for me. Jesus warned in Mark 13, quote, Watch therefore, 
For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you doing what? Sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. This is a clear call for pre-rapture alertness. Now is no time to be careless and lethargic about spiritual things. Amen? Amen. And you know, you're here on a Wednesday night when you could be doing a lot of things and it blesses me to see you because we're studying the Word. That means there's a hunger for the Word in this church. I'd like to have to have two Wednesday nights. Amen? Amen? Now, next, Paul exhorts the Lord's people, the children of light, in verse 8, quote, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, you know, he mentions two pieces of the six-piece armor that he expands on in Ephesians 6, and that is the breastplate and the helmet. Now, in contrast with lost people who are asleep to spiritual realities and drunkenly incapable of properly responding to them, incapacitated by their own wicked lifestyle, the Lord's people are to have all their faculties about them and all their spiritual nature alert. Oh, hear me, church. Listen, um, I don't drink anything ever. Alone or publicly, don't touch it. And the reason I don't, well, there's a lot of reasons. I don't want it, but there's a lot of reasons. I think with every sip, you lower your ability to make a good decision. So who, who wants to go out there and be open to bad decision making? All right? Second, you're paying a whole lot of money for something liquid. Water's cheaper. Third, it dulls you, doesn't it? It dulls you. And I want to be able to say to people who are going through our Celebrate Recovery program, a lot of them are struggling with a battle with alcohol. I want to be able to say to them, if they were to ever come up to me and say, Pastor, do you ever drink? I want to be able to say, no, not alcohol, but I do drink. Now, I'm not talking about coffee. You're looking at me like, well, we know all about the coffee. No, I drink of the Holy Spirit. I've, I, I, it's, listen, one thing I really want to learn to do is tap into the power of the Holy Spirit at any given time, in any day. I want to tap into the Now, I'm not trying to condemn anybody. I'm really not. This is me. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But I don't want to dull myself. I want to be sharp, sensitive, listening, alert, to the voice of God and to the Holy Ghost. And I think if I was drinking, I wouldn't be able to do that. It dulls you. It dulls you. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That's good preaching. Hallelujah. I, I'm just, I, I'm looking here, uh, you know, I'm looking here, uh, you know, our world is intoxicated. I mean, they're wanting to, they're wanting to legalize pot now. I think there's a satanic plan behind that. I mean, the devil wants Americans walking around foggy-headed in another world, not thinking straight. Don't tell me it doesn't hurt you. That's a lie. I mean, if you want to talk about the pure, 
tar that goes down into your lungs with every hit off that joint, it's like 20, 30 times stronger than a cigarette. But why walk around with your head in a fog? I think it's the devil's plan to intoxicate Americans and get their minds in a dull, cloudy state. Because then you believe anything, go with anything, accept anything. I want to be thinking, alert, spotting the devil, nailing him. That's free. You can do whatever you want with that. Chew the meat, spit out the bones. All right. Borrowing from a Roman soldier's armor, he illustrates the fact that a war is on. Light against darkness is the war. Day against night is the war. And the breastplate protects the heart, your affections. The helmet protects the head, your thoughts. Our affections and our thoughts are to be kept protected from the enemy. We are not to love the things this world has to offer, and we've got to be on guard against being seduced by this world's philosophies, attitudes, and attractions. i got to say one more thing. I have never been around anybody smoking pot that was not dull and, yeah, man. No motivation, no drive, no ambition, just sit around and smoke that weed. And, and don't tell me it doesn't hurt you. I want my motivation. I want my fire. I, I want my thinking. I just had to say that. Because as a teenager, I smoked pot. I know. A long time ago. But I know everybody I was hanging around with was the same way. Hey, yeah. We didn't know what was going on. Peace, love. Yeah, right. And then they go out and kill people. And... All right. Next, a great promise. Chapter 5, 9 and 10. Here's the promise, and we're going to close with this. For God, read this with me. This is great. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. Now let's read, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, first, Paul tells us what we shall escape. Note the use of the personal pronoun again, us and we. There are people who are going to experience the wrath of God. But those he describes by the use of the pronouns us and we are going to escape the wrath. And that's the church. The wrath here, this is very important. This is where words come in. The meaning of words. The wrath here is not the eternal wrath referred to by Paul in his letter to the Romans when he said this, quote, in 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. That's present active indicative. The word revealed, it means is right now ongoingly being poured out on the human race. The human race right now, outside of Christ, is under wrath. The wrath of God is right now ongoingly being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath 
Here is the same wrath mentioned at the end of the sealed judgments. The wrath that we're talking about right now that we will not be a part of. He's not talking about that general wrath being poured out on the human race. He's talking about the wrath that is spoken of in the book of Revelations. It's the end times wrath. The same wrath described in the revelation of John as being poured out with the opening of the seven seals, the sounding of the seven trumpets, and the pouring out of the seven vials. It is that wrath specifically prepared for a Christ-rejecting world. That is a particular kind of wrath. And it's that wrath we have not been appointed to. He has promised to save his church from that wrath. As Noah entered the ark before the floods rose on a godless world, and the door was shut, and then the judgment fell, and as Lot was delivered by angels from the fiery judgment of Sodom, so shall the church be caught up before the tribulation wrath. That particular tribulation wrath is poured out. Paul closes with an exhortation not to worry. Can we stand together? I want us to read this together. This is the second time he said this in 1 Thessalonians. After, at the very close of chapter 4, he said, comfort one another with these words. And now here at verse 11, he says again, comfort each other. So let's read it, can we? Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. Be comforted, church. Our God has it all in his hands. And you know what? Let's preach the gospel as fast and as far and as wide as we can so that as many as possible will come to know the Lord and be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Are you glad you're not under wrath right now? Amen. Amen. You're under grace, and you're under love, and you're under His compassion and His goodness and His blessing. Father, thank You that we have not been called or appointed to that vicious wrath, that sobering wrath that's coming upon the world. But Lord, You, by the blood, took us out from under the general wrath that's being poured on the world right now. And You have promise that we will not face the wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world in the tribulation period. We pray that you will lay your hand on this church and churches all over this country and world with an evangelistic fire to win as many to Jesus as possible. For Lord, in your blood, we know there is peace and there is deliverance. And I want to encourage you here tonight with our heads bowed. If you're, if you're in this place and you're not right with the Lord, why would you go out to your car, turn the key, get on the highway, and leave without settling that issue? Because you can settle it right now. You can come to Him right now. And be removed from wrath to grace.
I encourage you right where you stand, say, Jesus, forgive me. And come into my heart. Be my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing this before we go tonight. Let's worship just a moment.